When they cross that road, they'll be under short-range artillery, canister fire, thousands of little bits of shrapnel wiping holes in the lines. If they get to that wall without breaking up, there won't be many left. The attack is known as Pickett's Charge, but Pickett was not the only general involved. In fact, there were three Confederate generals that led the assault that afternoon. Ordered by Confederate General Robert E. Lee and commanded by Confederate General James E. Longstreet, the order for the charge was carried out by three divisions, commanded by General George Pickett, Isaac Trimble, and James Johnston Pettigrew. Anticipating a Confederate assault, General Meade commanded Corps Commander General Winfield Scott Hancock, along with Division Generals Alexander Hayes and Artillery General John Gibbon, prepare for attack. In this video, we will mention and talk about the main leaders of both the Confederate and Union forces of Pickett's Charge. We will talk about who these men were, their leadership on the battlefield, and what they did before and after Pickett's Charge. Now, there were thousands of men involved in this assault, and there were dozens of officers that played a role in Pickett's charge. I tried my best to mention every single officer that was important in Pickett's charge. If I missed one, please let me know in the comments and let me know if you want me to do a separate video on any of these men that I briefly mentioned towards the end. In May of 1863, James Johnston Pettigrew's brigade joined the Army of Northern Virginia for the Pennsylvania Campaign. He would take part in one of the bloodiest assaults of the war on July 1st, when Pettigrew's brigade drove some of the best Union soldiers from their position on McPherson's Ridge on the outskirts of Gettysburg. Henry Heath was the division's commander, but he was wounded. And during the next two days of the Battle of Gettysburg, Pettigrew commanded his own and three other brigades. James Pettigrew was a very intelligent man. He was a lawyer and a scholar and an author. He was born in North Carolina and entered the University of North Carolina at the age of just 14. He was a brilliant mathematician and upon graduating from college was appointed personally by President James K. Polk as a professor at the National Observatory. However, he would leave the observatory after six months and would study at the University of Berlin. For the next few years, he traveled Europe and fell in love with the countries he visited, especially Italy and Spain. Pettigrew was proficient in at least four European languages, as well as Hebrew and Arabic. Two languages he taught himself with the intention of writing a history of the Spanish Moors, whose chivalry and civilized influence upon Europe 
he greatly admired. He returned to Charleston, South Carolina, where he became a junior partner in his cousin's law firm there. It wouldn't be long, though, before he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1856. Pettigrew's most notable service was his presentation of a minority report that marshaled the arguments against reopening the foreign slave trade, a measure that had been endorsed by the governor and many other legislative bodies in South Carolina. His report saw him losing re-election to South Carolina's House of Representatives. Pettigrew would publish his book on Spain and the Spaniards in the summer of 1859 at a glance at Sardinia. By all means, his book is a travel account or an exploration of his search for Spanish history and a defense of the Spanish against Anglo-Saxon prejudices. Many of the Spanish characteristics he celebrated, individualism, personal pride, democratic manners, particularism, loyalty, devoutness, disdain for capitalist and utilitarian values. So when the Civil War broke out, it was no surprise that he sided with his native Carolina on the issue. Pettigrew quickly rose through the ranks in the Confederate Army. He was promoted as Brigadier General just in time for the Peninsula Campaign of 1862. He would be severely wounded during the Battle of Seven Pines on May 31st, 1862. Pettigrew would be shot through his throat and shoulder while advancing on enemy position. Believing that the wound was fatal, he refused to allow his men to carry him off the field. During a Union counterattack, he was shot again in the arm and bayoneted in the leg as he lay dying on the field. Reported as dead by the Confederacy, Pettigrew was picked up from the field the next morning by Union troops and made a prisoner, where he gradually recuperated from his wounds. He was exchanged and was assigned to command a brigade consisting of the 11th, 26th, 44th, 47th, and 52nd North Carolina regiments. With these troops, Pettigrew fought a number of small battles in eastern North Carolina between September of 1862 and the spring of 1863. During Pickett's charge, Pettigrew's division had been severely reduced. Pettigrew was up against Brigadier General Alexander Hayes. Hayes was born in Pennsylvania in 1819, graduated from West Point, and was a friend of General Ulysses S. Grant, and he commanded the 39th, 111th, 125th, and 126th New York Infantries. They were nicknamed the Harper's Ferry Cowards. The nickname was the 126th New York Infantries moniker. It was given to them after September 15, 1862, which saw the greatest capture of American forces until the Battle of Bataan some 70 years later. The regiment had only been in action for 21 days and was stationed on Maryland Heights. They had successfully held off Confederate forces for two days. However, when members of the 126th saw their colonel, Lakeham Sherrill, being carried off the field after suffering a wound to the face. Some companies lost all sense of direction and fled. Following the 15th of September's surrender, the 126th had been placed on parole in Camp Douglas in Chicago until November. 
They were then placed under the command of Alexander Hayes. General Hayes would have his brigade ride for 24 hours straight without rest to make it to Gettysburg on time. There, he was placed in charge of the 3rd Division of the Federal 2nd Corps that was commanded by his friend Hancock. With his symbol, the blue trefoil, Hayes affectionately called his troops his bluebirds. It would be during Pickett's charge that the Harper's Ferry cowards would have a chance to redeem themselves. For himself, Hayes had been severely wounded at 2nd Bull Run and had missed an opportunity to fight at Antietam and Fredericksburg. Faced with Pickett's charge, Hayes demonstrated his boldness by riding around the battlefield and urging on his men as they repelled the Confederate assault. Walking around in the open while being bombarded by Confederate artillery, and finally tying a captured battle flag to his horse and dragging it across the Union line in celebration. Later, he said that much of his emotions at Gettysburg may be attributed to the idea of protecting his native Pennsylvania from the Confederates. Pettigrew also led his men boldly and bravely during the charge. However, during the attack, he led his men out in front. His horse was shot out from underneath him, and he was wounded in his hand. It was said that he was to have been one of the last men to return to the Confederate lines. At Gettysburg, Pettigrew's own brigade had the highest casualties of any in the Confederate army. Coming up behind Pettigrew's division was Brigadier General Isaac R. Trimble who had stepped in to replace Major General Dorsey Pender Division. Pender had been mortally wounded in battle the previous day. This also put Trimble at a disadvantage because he had never worked with these troops before. Isaac Trimble was born in Virginia, but as a young boy, both his mother and father had died of fever, and he was sent to live with his half-brother in Kentucky. He attended West Point, and he excelled academically in engineering and became a lieutenant of artillery. He served for 10 years in the Union Army. After the Army, he moved to Maryland and made a name for himself as an engineer on the railroads. After shots had been fired at Fort Sumter, he led a contingent of Maryland state militia to burn the railroad bridges around Baltimore to prevent the entry of any more federal troops from passing through the divided, riotous city of Baltimore following the bloodshed of the Pratt Street riots on April 19, 1861. He did this on the orders of the mayor of Baltimore, George William Brown, and the governor of Maryland, Governor Hicks. Trimble would see action at the Battle of Cross Keys and the Battle of Cedar Mountain, but it would be at the Second Battle of Bull Run where Trimble would be wounded in the leg. His injury was so severe that there was speculation he was hit with an explosive bullet. Although Trimble did avoid the amputation of his wounded leg. His rehabilitation, though, was very slow. For months, doctors would periodically find bone fragments that had to be extracted from his body. He would contract several serious bacterial infections from his wound, but nevertheless always begged to get back up on his horse. He even wrote to General Stonewall Jackson, quote, General Jackson, before this war is over, 
I intend to be a major general of a corps, saying if I am to have a promotion, I want it at once, and I particularly request that my date be from August 26th, the date of the capture of Manassas. From his sick bed, he was promoted to Major General on January 17th, 1863, but would still be too unwell to take command at the Battle of Chancellorsville. However, by June of 1863, Trimble was desperate to get back into action. He joined Lee's headquarters unsolicited and wore out his welcome hanging around without formal assignment. Riding north, he caught up with Lieutenant General Richard Ewell on the way to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and joined his staff as a senior officer without a command. Trimmel can even be seen in the movie Gettysburg telling Robert E. Lee his feelings about Ewell not taking Cemetery Hill. Give me one division. I will take that hill. And he said nothing. He just stood there. He stared at me. I said, General Yule, give me one brigade and I will take that hill. I was becoming disturbed. And General Yule put his arms behind him and blinked. So I said, General, give me one regiment and I will take that hill. And he said nothing. He just stood there. I threw down my sword down on the ground in front of him. As Trimble's division advanced, he rode on his horse Jenny and was shot in the leg. The same leg hit at second bull run. Incredibly, he managed to walk back to the Confederate line on Seminary Ridge. His leg, though, would now have to be amputated. This also meant that Trimble could not be taken along with the retreating Confederates after the Battle of Gettysburg. They feared that another infection would result from a long ambulance ride back to Virginia. So he was left under the care of a family in Gettysburg as the army withdrew. Ironically, Trimble would complain bitterly that if his leg had been amputated at second bull run, the bullet would have missed him entirely. He would be treated at the seminary hospital at Gettysburg until August. Regarding the charge on the third day of Gettysburg, Trimble said, quote, If the men I had the honor to command that day could not take that position, all hell couldn't take it. Though Trimble and Pettigrew would square off against General Alexander Hayes, the brunt of Pickett's charge would be pitted against General John Gibbon's division. General John Gibbon was born April 20th, 1827 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. At the age of 10, his father moved the family south to Charlotte, North Carolina. He would attend West Point and was made a second lieutenant of artillery. He would serve in Florida, fighting against the Seminole Indians, but would return to West Point as a teacher in artillery tactics. Gibbons would publish the Artillerist's Manual, in 1859, a manual that was widely used by both the Confederate and Union forces during the Civil War. Gibbon, like so many families, were divided on the issue of slavery. And Gibbon, unlike his father and his three brothers, who would go on to fight for the Confederacy, Gibbon sided with the Union. He was made Chief of Artillery for Major General 
Irvin McDowell a year later and was promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers and placed in command of the Iron Brigade. Gibbon made his mark by instilling rigid discipline and drilling them into the most tenacious fighters in the Army of the Potomac. He led them at the Battle of Second Manassas, or Bull Run, as well as the Battle of South Mountain, where General Joseph Hooker gave them their famous nickname. The Iron Brigade would suffer heavy losses fighting at Antietam, where Gibbon himself would have to personally man an artillery piece. In 1862, Gibbon was promoted to command the 2nd Division, 1st Corps, which he led at Fredericksburg, where he was wounded. Returning to duty, Months later, Gibbon commanded the 2nd Division of Hancock's 2nd Corps at Gettysburg. I'm not sure, but I do wonder if he knew or understood that as he directed his artillery units to fire from the top of Cemetery Ridge onto the Confederates down below, that his cousin, General Johnston Pettigrew, would be soon retreating from his artillery fire. Gibbon would also be wounded during Pickett's charge. While recovering from his wounds, though, he would attend the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in November of 1863, where Abraham Lincoln would give his famous Gettysburg Address. The attack would forever be immortalized as Pickett's charge, though as we've established, General George Pickett was not the only Brigadier General in charge of a Confederate division that afternoon. General Pickett's responsibility that afternoon was to form the divisions of Brigadier General Pettigrew and General Tremble as they reached their attack positions on his left. George Pickett was born somewhere around 1825 in Richmond, Virginia. He bragged that he graduated last in his class at West Point. A veteran of the Mexican-American War, Pickett was not a supporter of slavery, but when Virginia seceded, he returned to serve his state. He accepted a commission as a major in the Confederate Army. Quickly promoted to colonel and then brigadier general, he led a brigade under James Longstreet's command. Known for his flamboyant style, he and his men arrived two days before the Battle of Gettysburg. Much like Pettigrew, Pickett's men had also been depleted, but Robert E. Lee had decided to use Pickett's men to lead the grand assault against the Union forces who had the high ground at Gettysburg on July 3rd, 1863. Pickett's men would make the furthest breach into Union lines, marching for over a mile in an open field as cannon and musket fire from the Union Army rained down upon them. As I mentioned earlier, the Confederate casualties were astounding. Though Pickett may have been chosen to lead the charge, the call was not Pickett's make. That call belonged to General James Longstreet, a call that has garnered a bit of controversy. Longstreet was born in 1821 in South Carolina. 
He would graduate from West Point in 1842, where he would become friends with a young Ulysses S. Grant. He would also serve in the Mexican War and became good friends with General George Pickett. When the Civil War broke out, Longstreet was serving in the New Mexico Territory. After 20 years of service in the Union Army, he would resign his commission to fight for the Confederacy. Longstreet commanded a division of six brigades that would make up the first corps of the Army of Northern Virginia. During the Civil War, he would lose three of his children to scarlet fever. It would be his good friend, George Pickett, that would arrange and bury his children while he was away during the Peninsula Campaign. The death of his children would have a lasting effect on Longstreet, but despite that, Longstreet would become a trusted advisor of General Lee's. Lee even wrote that Longstreet was the staff in his right hand. He would become a hero at Second Manassas and would be commended for his excellent performance at Antietam. His performance at Fredericksburg was exemplary. As Longstreet joined Lee's army at Gettysburg, Longstreet voiced his skepticism about the invasion of the North. Longstreet believed that the assault was a folly and had told Robert E. Lee that it was the wrong decision to make. Longstreet believed that Lee should leave the field and circle around the Union lines, positioning the Confederates between the road to Washington and the Army of the Potomac, thereby forcing the Union forces hand. See, but Lee was tired. He wanted the war done now and felt that the only way to end that would be to attack the Union troops on Cemetery Ridge. General Longstreet did not want to make that call. And in his memoir, Longstreet recalled his response when General George Pickett famously asked, General, shall I advance? Longstreet could not even find the words to tell him yes. He wrote, the effort to speak the order failed, and I could only indicate by an affirmative brow. Pickett accepted the duty with seeming confidence of success, leapt on his horse, and rode gaily to his command. Why would Lee not listen to Longstreet? With history, we have the luxury of hindsight. And I think what we need to remember is that Lee had some very difficult decisions to make. Lee had believed that the fighting from the previous day July 2nd, had weakened the Union's defenses. He felt that if they had assaulted the Union line with cannon fire, it would continue to weaken federal troops and an infantry attack like Pickett's charge would be enough to destroy the Union line. What Lee did not anticipate, though, that a lot of that artillery fire would overshoot their target. It would lead to chaos in the back of the Union forces, but it would leave the front line intact. Unluckily for the Confederates, the Federal commander, Major General George Meade, anticipated a strike on his center and had spent the night strengthening his internal line against a frontal assault. 
Lake Pickens Charge. Opposite General Longstreet was General Winfield Scott Hancock, who was commanding most of the infantry on Cemetery Ridge that afternoon. Major General Hancock commanded the Army of the Potomac's 2nd Corps. Hancock and his identical twin brother were born in 1824 in Square, Pennsylvania, just northwest of Philadelphia. He was named after famed Winfield Scott, the hero of the War of 1812. Hancock, like so many other officers, would attend West Point. He would graduate in 1844. Hancock's military career would take him all over the Western territories. When the Civil War broke out, Hancock would return to the East and assume quartermaster duties in the Union Army. He would quickly be promoted to Brigadier General and given an infantry brigade to command in the Army of the Potomac. He would serve at the Battle of Antietam, where Hancock would assume command of the 1st Division's 2nd Corps. He would lead an attack on Marius Heights in the Battle of Fredericksburg, where he would be wounded. At the Battle of Chancellorsville, his division would cover Major General Joseph Hooker's withdrawal, where Hancock would be wounded a second time. After Major General John F. Reynolds was killed on the first day of fighting at Gettysburg. General George Meade put Hancock in temporary command of the left wing of the army. This consisted of the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Corps. Hancock would organize the Union defenses on Cemetery Hill. On July 3rd, Hancock would defend his position on Cemetery Ridge and bear the brunt of Pickett's charge. During the assault, Hancock was riding on horseback. He was encouraging his troops. When one of his subordinates protested, General, the Corps commander ought not to risk his life this way, Hancock said, There are times when a Corps commander's life does not count. Hancock would suffer a severe wound caused by a bullet striking the pommel of his saddle, entering his inner thigh along with wood fragments and a large bent nail. He would have to be helped from his horse by aides, and with the tourniquet applied to staunch the bleeding, he removed the saddle nail himself. Despite his pain, Hancock would refuse to be evacuated to the rear until the battle was resolved. The Union lost about 1,500 men, either killed or wounded. The Confederates' casualty rate, though, was over 50%. Pickett's division suffered 2,600 casualties. Pettigrew's, 2,700. Trimble's two brigades lost 885 men. In total, during the attack, 1,100 Confederates were killed on the battlefield. Over 4,000 were wounded, and a good number of them were also captured. The casualties were also high among the commanders of Pickett's charge. In Pickett's division, 26 of the 40 field officers, that's majors, lieutenants, colonels, were casualties. 12 killed or mortally wounded, 9 wounded, 4 wounded and captured, and 1 
captured. All of his brigade commanders fell. Kemper was seriously wounded and captured by Union soldiers. He was rescued and then captured again during the retreat to Virginia. Garnett and Armistead were both killed. General Armistead would be wounded mortally near the angle. He would die two days later in a Union hospital. Armistead was good friends with Winfield Scott Hancock, who was also wounded during the battle. Per his dying wishes, Longstreet delivered Amistad's Bible and other personal effects to Hancock's wife, Elmira. As Lee watched soldiers stagger back to the Confederate line along Seminary Ridge, he feared a Union counteroffensive and desperately tried to rally his center. General Pick. Sir, you may reform to the rear of this ridge and set up a defensive position. General Pickett, sir, you must look to your division. General Lee, I have no division. It's said that Lee kept telling returning troops that the failure of this charge was all his fault. Pickett for himself was inconsolable for the rest of the day and would never forgive Lee for ordering the charge. The Union counteroffensive, though, never came. The Army of the Potomac was exhausted and was depleted at the end of three days of fighting. Meade was perfectly content to hold the field and... On July 4th, a truce was formed for each side to collect their dead and wounded. That same day, Grant accepted the surrender of Vicksburg, splitting the Confederacy in two. These two Union victories are considered to be the turning point of the American Civil War. After the Battle of Gettysburg, Pettigrew's brigade was at the rear of the Confederate retreat from Gettysburg. His brigade would be the last unit still north of the Potomac River when the Union cavalry attacked on July 14, 1863. Pettigrew was directing his soldiers when he was shot by a Union soldier from the Michigan Brigade at close range, the bullet striking him in the abdomen. He was immediately carried to the rear and across the Potomac, having refused to be left in Federal hands. He died three days later at Edgewood Manor Plantation near Bunker Hill, West Virginia. His brigade had lost 56% of their men. Hayes would continue to serve in the Union Army after Gettysburg, but his luck would run out at the Battle of the Wilderness, where he would die instantly after being shot in the head. As you can probably guess, Gettysburg marked the end of Trimble's military career. He would be in federal custody until the end of the war, where he would then return to Baltimore, Maryland, and resume his engineering work. Trimble would also build Baltimore's historic President Street Station, the oldest big city train station in America. It was restored in 1997 and now serves as the Baltimore Civil War Museum. Gibbons would lead his men at the Battle of the Wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse, Cold Harbor, and Petersburg. 
Gibbon would be promoted to Major General in 1864. Gibbon would then serve as one of the surrender commissioners when the Army of Northern Virginia finally succumbed to defeat at Appomattox Courthouse. Gibbon would remain in the Army until 1891, having served for nearly 50 years. He would spend his post-war career engaged with natives on the frontier. It would be Gibbon's column who would come upon the remains of General Custer and his men after the Battle of Little Bighorn. Gibbon would also lead a successful campaign against Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce the following year. Upon his retirement in 1891, he moved to Baltimore, where he died on February 6th, 1896. He is now buried in Arlington National Cemetery. After the failure at Gettysburg, Pickett continued to command his division during the Overland Campaign, as well as the Siege of Petersburg. During the Battle of Five Forks, though, Pickett and his men were defeated, which led to the collapse and the surrender of the Confederate army. After the war, Pickett would briefly flee to Canada, only to return in 1866. He went back and settled in Norfolk, Virginia, and worked as an insurance agent. Pickett would have a difficult time obtaining a pardon for his Confederate service during the war, but would receive one about a year before he died in 1874. Pickett died in 1875 in Virginia. After Gettysburg, Longstreet would go west to aid General Braxton Bragg. The relationship between Longstreet and Bragg would deteriorate, and President Davis would not remove General Bragg at Longstreet's request. Longstreet would leave Tennessee and return to the Army of Northern Virginia in 1864. He would fight at the Battle of the Wilderness in May. There, Longstreet would be fired upon by his own men. He would take a Manet bullet through the neck and shoulder, permanently paralyzing his right arm. His recovery would be long, and he would not return to his corps until October. Longstreet was then assigned to protect Richmond. On April 2nd, General A.P. Hill was killed when Union forces broke the Confederate line at Petersburg. Longstreet would take command of his Third Corps. Only a few days later, Lee surrendered at Appomattox. After the war, Longstreet moved to New Orleans, and he would never speak to General Lee again. Longstreet would become the villain of the Lost Cause narrative. Longstreet became a supporter of the Republican Party. This made many Southerners felt that he was praising the North and vilifying the South. In 1868, Longstreet, with the help of General Grant, had received a pardon. He would go on to support Grant for president, and Grant would nominate Longstreet to the Surveyor of Customs for the Port of New Orleans. This was the last betrayal of the South, though it would not be the last of Longstreet's controversial action. He would write a letter to the New Orleans Times criticizing Robert E. Lee's leadership. Many of his former Confederate officers would attack Longstreet. Though his reputation had taken a hit, 
Longstreet still remembered his military roots. He would participate in the unveiling of Lee's statue in Richmond in 1892 and would speak at the dedication of Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Parks in 1895. He would even come back to Gettysburg with other Union and Confederate officers. Longstreet would also publish his memoirs, from Manassas to Appomattox in 1895. Two years later, in 1897, he married 34-year-old Helen Dorch. Helen would defend Longstreet's name until her death in 1962. Longstreet would die in 1904, just days shy of his 83rd birthday. Hancock would suffer from the effects of his wound at Gettysburg for the rest of his life. He would return in the spring to field command of the 2nd Corps for Ulysses S. Grant during the Overland Campaign. He was there at the Battle of the Wilderness and the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. His corps would suffer enormous losses during the Battle of Cold Harbor. The lingering effects of his wound at Gettysburg would catch up to him, and he would give up field command in November of 1864. When President Lincoln had been assassinated on April 14, 1865 by John Wilkes Booth, Hancock would be assigned to supervise the execution of the conspirators in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Hancock would carry out these executions on July 7th. Hancock would spend a long career in the military after the Civil War. He would fight in the many Plains Indian Wars, and he would also contribute to the creation of Yellowstone National Park. In August of 1870, he ordered the 2nd Cavalry at Fort Ellis to provide a military escort for General Henry D. Washburn's planned exploration of the Yellowstone region. When General Meade died in 1872, President Grant assigned Hancock to command the Division of the Atlantic. Hancock, though, had political ambitions. He would win the Democratic nomination in 1880 and would run against my favorite president, James A. Garfield. Hancock would lose to Garfield by only 40,000 votes. After his defeat, carried on his command of the Division of the Atlantic. He would also be elected president of the National Rifle Association in 1881 explaining that the object of the NRA is to increase the military strength of the country by making skill in the use of arms as prevalent as it was in the days of the revolution. Hancock was a charter director and the first president of the Military Service Institution of the United States from 1879 until his death in 1886. When he died, he was still in command of the military division of the Atlantic and would die of complications by diabetes. Long after the Battle of Gettysburg, Pickett's charge would continue to have an impact. Many historians have pointed to it as Lee's final major opportunity to win the war decisively before time and supplies ran out. It signaled the start of the end of the Confederate Army and the Confederacy as a whole. 
It will go down in history as one of the most costly and unsuccessful actions of a horrible and tragic war. So many soldiers lost their lives so selflessly in a last-ditch effort to achieve their aim.